I'm Chris Motes, and this is Faith in Politics. On this broadcast, we range from the soul to the state as we cultivate those virtues and explore those principles that help us live well as faithful Catholics in this great land. Well, welcome back for another episode, folks. As I am recording, we are on Monday in the last week of the kind of regular legislative session. What remains after this? It's going to be a couple of days of haggling over the budget and then a little break until legislators come back at the end of March for veto day. We had a bit of, bit of drama on veto day last year as there was some um, legislative and executive wrangling over a governor's sports bill. That drama, they got out of the way early this session with the passage of Senate Bill 46, which has already been signed into law. A big, big thank you to all the legislators and to Governor Nome for their support uh, of that bill, which has brought it into law. Of course, the purpose of that is to protect fairness in women's sports at both the K-12 and collegiate level. We got a number of things that are happening this week. As I said, the budget is a big one of them. Uh, before, we, before we get into some of our, our issues, um, I just want to break some personal news. I, after five sessions, legislative sessions, as the executive director of the South Dakota Catholic Conference, am going to be departing. Don't be afraid, though. I'm not going too far. I am going just down the hall. I'm really pleased to uh, have accepted a position to serve as Bishop DeGrude's chief of staff for the Diocese of Sioux Falls. It does mean that the South Dakota Catholic Conference is going to be hiring for an executive director. So if you know anybody, it's, it's either got a law degree, maybe a, the, a theology background, maybe loves politics and the lawmaking process that might be interested, they can go to our website or either one of the diocesan websites and uh, find the job posting, send it on to a friend. We need some, uh, some great candidates that are going to uh, be next in line to serve the bishops. So kind of a fitting, um, I don't know, final, not a final episode. We're going to keep this going until we've got our next one in place. But um, my last one formally as the executive director of the South Dakota Catholic Conference, really pleased to um, welcome back on the program uh, a guest that's been with us several times before, Norman Woods. Norman is the executive director of the Family Heritage Alliance. In some ways, I kind of describe Norman like the Protestant me in some ways. Um, not an exact analog, um, just because of, you know, theological differences with, you know, bishops. We have a pretty Catholics. We've got a very clear understanding of apostolic success, success, succession and bishops, but so, so much overlap in the issues we cover. Norman, welcome back to the show. Hey, thanks, Chris. Glad to be back. So you are back and I have got a gift. People, we are, we are recording uh, in the basement of a kind guest home. Uh, in Pierce. So we can't, we don't have video today, so people can't see this, but I am holding up in front of me a gift that I'm about to give you. It is a book. It's called Evangelicals and Catholics Together Toward a Common Mission. It's an oldie, but a goodie. It was written in 1995, edited by Charles Colson, Chuck Colson, of course, a very well-known uh, evangelical. And then Father Richard John Newhouse, a famous Catholic priest, kind of an intellectual fellow, um, and founder of First Things Magazine. Norman, here's the book, uh, A Parting Gift. One of the things I've just been so grateful for my five years of, of doing this, it's just been, um, I, I want to say like a friendship with you. I've just been really grateful for it. You know, I think one of the um, greatest joys of life uh, truly is seeking truth in the company of friends. Um, and I just feel like we've been able to do that together. So... Uh, thanks for being along on this great ride with me. Hey, it's been a blast, Chris. Uh, we've been in the trenches for a while together. We've been quite a few victories together, quite a few losses together, and just it's been 
It's been great to have such a deep friendship with someone like with you and as we've been working through these things. And as the book, first of all, thanks. I've heard you talk about this a few different times. It's kind of been on my list of to buy it someday. So this is perfect. Um, And I think that really just kind of describes us like evangelicals and Catholics together toward a common mission. Like that's kind of what united you and I. We're both, you know, we're both believers. There's some differences, but we're both believers. We're both seeking Jesus. We're both seeking what's best for society, especially within the realm of politics. So it's just been really cool to just develop that friendship over the years. And as we step into the next chapter as well. Well, and maybe we'll have to talk about the book on a future episode. We've got three essays in there written by uh, evangelicals and three by Catholics, so a little more grist for the mills. We love to talk about books on this program. Okay, before we talk about some of the bills um, from this session, give me, okay, you've gotten to know me uh, over the last five years. I don't know if you've had close friendships with Catholics before, but give me, what's, what's Norman Wood's hot take? Give me, give me one thing about Catholics that you've learned over the last five years um, just through our relationship or maybe exposure to other Catholics in the capital. I think the one thing I've noticed primarily is your desire to go deeper, mm. especially with knowledge and actual like meat of the details of your faith. Ah. I've seen that among you and several other just close Catholic friends that I've had. That's just really what stood out to me, your desire to go deeper. I love that. I, um, and I, I'm really honored by that. I kind of hope, too, that even this podcast, Faith and Politics, might just be a little taste that inspires listeners to go deeper with the books we're reading, with the ideas we're talking about. I, I really hope that it's an invitation to something more and that it's not like the end of the story, but rather is the beginning of the story. Okay, now it's my turn. Do I get to give a hot take about Protestants? What's your hot take on Protestants? Joy! Like, Norman, you're just a joyful guy, and I love it. Like, it's it's really, and for me, it's so clear that the joy that you bear um, as you're sharing about whatever the political issue is, it's clearly born from a recognition that, like, God's truth is life-giving. And it's like... It's meant to be a source of joy for us, not like a source of, oh, just God's got a bunch of rules and they're all burdens, but actually the law that he's written into the order of the universe is like a source of deep joy. So thank you for your joy, Norman. Well, I appreciate that. Yeah. Okay. Now let's kind of dive a little bit into, we're going to go through here and um, talk a little bit about some of the bills that have come up this session. Norman's going to go first. Norman Woods, what are your top three for the session? Top three. Well, I'd say two of them were kind of competing bills, I guess you could call it. And then the third would be, we'll start with number three, which was um, the topic of gambling. And we've kind of see the, the different forms of gambling, especially the addictions, just the harms that that causes in society. Um, so we'll start with number three, which I'd say was probably Senate Joint Resolution 502. Um, this would have put basically sports betting from any mobile device anywhere in the state. And we just really saw like a lot of potential for addiction there and just a lot of societal harms that could come from that. And so that was, I think, just a really good victory to see the legislature say, you know what, this is just not a good idea for people right now. Um, so just because of the, the societal ills that come with it. So then after that, I'll move into the two kind of the two competing bills that I mentioned. Um, that's just kind of what they were nicknamed here at the Capitol, so I'll go with it. So the first one dealt with the idea of commercial surrogacy, the idea that you can essentially contract for the parenthood of a child, and then the child is um, gestated in another woman. She's the birth mom. The birth mom gives birth, but these other parents take the baby home, which a lot of people think, oh, well, it's just like adoption. But because of the legal differences, the biological differences, just the different effects on people, there's we can get into the the reasons why it's not a good idea a little bit later, but 
Essentially, end of the day, it commodifies a kid and it splits mom into three different people, your birth mom, your social mom, and your genetic mom. So there's just, it's not in the child's best interest to establish commercial surrogacy as an industry here in the state. So the reason that there was a competing bill is because there were also legislators who said, hey, let's do this a different way. If you're going to transfer parenthood, Right now in the law, the only way to do that is through the adoption codes because the best interest of the child is always put first. You know, every different hoop or every different step that you have to go through in the adoption code, it's all focused on the best interest of the child, what is best for him or her. So we said, hey, if you're going to do something like this, a contract is not, vo- is not valid here, but you can adopt. So I'd say those would be my top three. Nice. Well, grateful, grateful for all of those. And I, I noticed how you snuck kind of one issue into your two there. So I'm going to make you throw in a bonus at the end. But I, I want to step back. It took me just a minute to find this. But going back to SJR 502, this is a, um, a Senate joint resolution is what that means, SJR. And it would have put to the voters of the state a proposed constitutional amendment that would have made anywhere, anytime sports betting permissible under the constitution of the state of South Dakota. Currently, our constitution prohibits gambling, except in some very narrow instances. Uh, In Deadwood, video lottery, of course, which we're not terribly happy about. That's uh, water, unfortunately, a couple decades under the bridge at this point. But just last year, um, we legalized sports betting in the city of Deadwood. And proponents have, have wanted to make that legal, not just in Deadwood, but everywhere. And I, Norman, kind of going back to just like the addiction that you mentioned, I wanted to, to quote, not all of our listeners, but most of our listeners are, are Catholics. So we're going to have that, that catechism at home. And you can pull up 2413. I just really love this quotation and wanted to share it. Games of chance uh, or wagers are not in themselves contrary to justice. We maybe put another way, we might say they're not intrinsically um, immoral. But they become morally unacceptable when they deprive someone of what is necessary to provide for his needs and those of others. The passion for gambling risks becoming an enslavement. And that's like, I mean, I know I heard you testify to this, and I certainly don't mean to speak for you, because I know there are um, some Protestants, at least, that that view gambling as inherently vicious. So maybe that's a point of difference, and that's okay. But one of the things that I heard you testify about in committee, Norman, is the younger generations and what these little black devices that we all carry in our pockets, mm-hmm. what they do to us, just like our, our brains and kind of what they mean for our generation, especially. Can you say a little bit more about that? Yeah. So yeah, as a millennial, I can testify that, yeah, phones are inherently addictive. And if you do the research, you know, there's research to actually back it up. You know, the different dopamine hits you get from just getting a text message or a like on Facebook. So you take a phone that is has high potential just to be addictive in itself and the different notifications. Then you take something like gambling, which has really high potential for addiction. It's not a good idea to put those two things together. It's just we'll see a lot of societal harms if we want to set that statewide. And you mentioned back when we first legalized sports betting, that was under the promise that it's you in a casino with your buddies, eating a burger, watching a game. And so kind of going back to that, like, is gambling inherently wrong? Is it inherently a sin? Or is it just something we need to be super careful with? That's kind of why we last time stood down and said, hey, you know what? If it's you sitting in a casino, eating a burger with your buddies, watching a game, the potential for addiction just doesn't really seem to show up there. And so we just, we didn't do anything with that. But on your phone, statewide, sitting in your basement, spending your paycheck, that's a whole nother thing. 
Yeah, and we, we would completely agree with that. You know, this, this word, I'm going to repeat it again. The word that the catechism uses is enslavement. And we know particularly with this sort of anytime, anywhere, it can be very isolating, alone in your, alone in your basement. Um, and ultimately, as we see these addictive tendencies, it's even in the, the psychiatric diagnostic manual. They updated it from, um, Oh, they changed the language um, in the diagnostic uh, description because they recognize that it's got it, it's it's got the same chemical thing going on in the brain as a drug addiction. So we're just very very concerned about what that might mean for our state. So we we did oppose that too, and are are really glad to see that it um, see that it died. The other issue that you mentioned, um, just commercial surrogacy, surrogacy in general. You, uh, I really like Norman. I don't know if this was how you talked about, or if you got this from Katie Faust, but sort of splitting up the mother Mm -hmm. into these three different roles, the genetic mother, the birth mother, and the social mother mother, that, um, we ought not intentionally separate any of those roles. Mm -hmm. We know that sometimes tragically this happens when, you know, let's say a, a woman, um, for one reason or another, can't raise her own child um, and gives it up for adoption. But the idea being we shouldn't intentionally separate those. I'm going to go to our catechism again, um, just because you're just putting in really simple terms what us ca- Catholics have in our catechism. This is paragraph 2376. Techniques that entail the dissociation of husband and wife by an intrusion of a person other than the couple through the donation of sperm or ovum, a surrogate uterus, etc., are gravely immoral. Whenever you see that word grave in Catholic doctrine, it's like, oh, that's serious, grave. um, These techniques infringe the child's right to be born of a father and a mother known to him and bound to each other in marriage. They they also betray the, the spouse's right to become a father and a mother only through each other. So I, I like too how it has that language of children's rights, mm-hmm. which is something we've really been talking about um, this year, especially trying to focus on children's rights. And then that final line, they betray the spouse's right to become a, a father and a mother uh, only through each other. There's a great guy out in uh, Wyoming, Protestant pastor, uh, Jonathan, what's his name? Maybe you don't, ah, uh, no, I don't know if he's been to any of the like ADF stuff. Um, and I'm blanking on his last name, but we had a conversation about this over the phone and the way he described it to me, his opposition, he said, Chris, it's a defilement of the marriage bed. You know, this sacred place for a a husband and a wife, um, where they become a mother and a father through each other. So one thing I had ringing in my ears about halfway through section session this year, I remembered a quote I heard. It said, when we begin untying the tight knot nexus of marriage, sex, and babies, we end up redefining all three. And that's exactly what we see with surrogacy, especially commercial surrogacy. If you untie marriage, sex, and babies from each other, well, now we're redefining what a mother is because you've got the genetic mother, the social mother, the birth mother. You're always separating the child from at least one, sometimes from all three. And in law, what even is a mother? If you've got all these different pieces spread across all these different situations. I love it. Bingo. Okay. Was that... so? Your second one was surrogacy. Your third one was adoption. Did I catch that right? Yeah, I lumped the surrogacy lumped in two did? bills. Yep. Okay, do you have one more? Yeah, I'll go, tw- I'll go 1246, that parental rights are oh, fundamental. Yeah. yeah, say more about that one. It was a super simple bill. Um, it was, I think, just one sentence. Yeah. And so basically there's a legal principle that 
simply says, hey, the court and the state, we're going to really recognize parental rights as being very important. They're fundamental. And so if we're going to do something to infringe on those rights or separate a child from their parent or a parent from the child, that's going to be given high, high levels of consideration and never going to be done flippantly. It's a legal principle that's been in place. And so this bill would have just clarified in our law the term fundamental and which would clarify, again, that we're going to continue using this legal principle to give really high weight and strong weight to parental rights. Um, that bill actually died in a Senate committee, which was kind of surprising. It was a vote to 6-1, I believe. Senator Stalzer was the only one who voted yes on that one. Um, but that's one we were really hoping to see go through. Yeah, that was, a, uh, that was a disappointing defeat. And to be honest, like a bit confusing as to why they voted against it. Um, I will say that the public school... Uh, lobbyists mobilized against it, and their concern that was that it was unduly vague. Um, in my view, kind of even just with like some of the legal training, it was simply reciting in statutory language a principle of law that's already in our case law. Um, so it just kind of shored up what the courts already recognize, yep. and would have ensured that courts didn't backtrack on that in the future by putting it into our state code. Um, I. I do expect that that bill will be back in the future. So that's that's one that we can pay attention to and, and really try and mobilize um, voters on in the future. So what about you? What are your top three? Okay, my turn here. Marijuana. Uh, uh, marijuana, man. This is There were like, I don't know, three dozen or more bills on marijuana. Yeah, it was ridiculous. There were so many marijuana bills. Um, so I, just to kind of give the brief history here, in 2020, when we saw two proposals on the ballot in November of 2020, Constitutional Amendment A was recreational marijuana. The Bishop's Conference was opposed to it for a variety of reasons. We could just look at it like as an inherently vicious thing. Why do people smoke marijuana? To get high. Getting high is like, that's not, that doesn't further human flourishing. It's like drinking only to get drunk. Like, that's what it would be comp comparable to. Um, aside from, like, the intrinsic viciousness that we can argue is present, we can just look at the social harms that are present in every single state that has adopted recreational marijuana. Uh, I just saw an article out of California today. I think it was actually in the British press, if I'm not mistaken. But it was about how the, the black market, I think they uh, legalized mar recreational marijuana four years ago or so in California. And the black market is now exploding there. It's just like easier. So that's where customers are going is the, the black market. It's like, great. There are all these people that now want this product and it's, they just think it's wonderful. So like all these projected boons are not present. The other just huge concern is, as we've already talked about with gambling, is addiction and the link to psychosis and, and mental uh, crises. Um, so that was, okay, that's Amendment A, 2020. Initiated Measure 26, um, we didn't take a position on just because the principles aren't um, quite as clear. Therapeutic use, we, we do use um, drugs for therapeutic purposes all the time. You know, I think we can just in like a prudential way look at the FDA and say, well, you know, you don't grow amoxicillin, um, you know, in your backyard. Why would you grow any other pharmaceutical, you know, locally? Um, but the principles weren't, weren't quite as clear. We recognize that there are some people that really are, are really truly suffering who say that this really helps them. 
Um, so I am 26 passed. Amendment A passed by a small, a much smaller margin, 4%. The courts invalidated I am, uh, or excuse me, Amendment A after it passed because they didn't follow the single subject rule. What they did is they passed both hemp, recreational marijuana, and medical marijuana all in one constitutional amendment. And the problem with that is that arguably, you know, a lot of people didn't really realize they thought they were voting for recreation or thought they were voting for medical and they had to vote for recreational to get it. It was frankly kind of confusing, which is why the Supreme Court, we have something called a single subject rule that requires that there's only one subject uh, per amendment that people are voting on. Fast forward to this legislative session. We have all these bills going on with uh, medical marijuana. And our concern there is that the rules are so lax that it's effectively legalizing recreational marijuana that all of a sudden medical marijuana is everywhere. You can get it super easily. Um, and it's, you know, as prevalent as, I mean, as one of the proponents put it, this is literally what one of the businessmen who is uh, hawking uh, these medical marijuana bills, he literally described it as what I want is for this to be like an over-the-counter drug. And that's frightening. Let's be honest. That's just like, this is not cough syrup we're talking about here. Right. This is, this is and this is not your 1970s um, Cheech and Chong stuff. This is some very, very potent um, drug. It's a drug is what it is. Um, on the recreational side, we took a position in opposition to Senate Bill 3, which cleared the Senate by a vote, made it to the House, killed the House committee. They attempted a smoke out and then didn't get the votes to calendar. So we were very pleased to see Senate Bill 3 die um, over in the House that would have legalized recreational marijuana. And the reason, this is the first one I mentioned, is because it is going to be on the ballot in November. Um, the petition is hanging out there. They have until May 3rd to submit their signatures. It's going to be on the ballot. And I want people to just know, like, this is a serious, this is a serious, serious thing. So if you thought you were voting for medical marijuana last time, folks, we have that now. You know, people that are suffering with really a severe chronic pain have access to that. But what we do not want is we do not want um, this, this drug uh, on every corner. We do not want it in every house. We don't want kids to have access to it. It's it's just got all sorts of issues. And we're going to have um, some of our social services and mental health providers on in the future uh, to talk a little bit more about this. And Norman, I saw you guys did a really great blog piece on this last week. Yeah. Talking, on, on, yeah. Yep. On familyheritagealliance.org, just kind of a summary of all the different pieces we saw this year. Um, and I think this issue is one perfect example of the Catholic Conference motto, seek the good of the city. Yeah. Like that's the reason that we shouldn't be doing recreational marijuana. Like what's good for the <clears throat> city or state? It's not this. Yeah, that, that, that's right. I mean, it's... Um, yeah, it, we just have, we fail to see how recreational marijuana advances the, the common good or the cause of human flourishing. It just, it doesn't. Okay, um, my next one I want to talk about is Senate Bill 71. This was an expansion of our tax credit scholarship bill, and a lot of people put in a lot of hard work on this. I, I certainly can't take credit. Um, for the lion's share of this work. A lot of the credit goes to prime sponsors, Lee Schoenbeck and John Hansen, as well as um, Phyllis Heinemann, 
a great Catholic lady, former uh, state senator, who has done amazing work with an organization called Partners in Education. They've done such great work that they have a waiting list of kids in need. They would like a partial scholarship to attend a private school, can't afford it on their own. This program um, makes it possible, and they bumped the program from 2 to $3.5 million, uh, this year. So really proud to see that one go through. Yeah, that was super cool just to see more educational options or this option available to more families. I remember back when Senator Heinemann was pushing this through, she worked so hard on all the different details. You know, she had different requirements from the agencies or the governor who said, hey, you, you know, I'll sign it if it's X, Y, Z, and it jumps through these hoops. And she would jump through those hoops. And then she was always bringing us on board and constantly updating us. A lot of work that she put in just to bring these options to families. And so it's cool to see bills like SB 71 go through just more opportunities for more families. Great. And I, this is going to be back, not necessarily in the same form. This is a great program that um, will continue into the future, but I know there's much interest in continuing discussions about education choice. The idea being that parents should be fully empowered to choose the choice that best fits their child, whether it's public school, private school, homeschool. Part of the conversation among legislators, something called education savings accounts. And there's been recent polling um, from Real Clear Opinion Research, 72% of registered American voters are in favor of education choice policy, which is overwhelming. It's bipartisan. Parents, voters love school choice. So I hope we see more of it in the future. And for Catholics who are maybe like I was five years ago, didn't really know much about the church's teaching on this, um, Vatican Council II has got some really beautiful social teaching um, that, that really strongly supports these sorts of policies. So looking forward to seeing how these policies develop in our state. Okay, Norman, um, for my last one, as we've got about two minutes left here, I want to turn to a defeat, another defeat um, that kind of just mystifies me. I don't know. This was earlier in the session. It was House Bill 1005. This would have ensured that um, K-12 school bathrooms would have remained sex segregated. The bill, um, it was went through the House. It was defeated six to one in Senate Judiciary. Again, um, that same uh, committee that killed this parents' uh, rights bill, Senator Stalzer, thank you for your vote, Senator, on um, on this particular proposal. This bill was brought after the Vermilion School District. Vermilion is a, um, a city in the state of South Dakota. Vermilion School District adopted a policy that permits boys to use girls' restrooms and vice versa. If doing so accorded with the student's the student's self-ascribed sense of gender. So their, their physical biology can be one thing, but if in their mind they identify with the opposite sex, they can use that bathroom. Um, the sponsors of this bill said that's just not right. It violates the rights of other children. Went through the House but was killed in the Senate. Very disappointed to see that defeat, especially with um, the Vermilion School District giving a, a, a prime example of why it's needed. Yeah, this is actually a bill that we've we've gotten through before. We got it to the governor's desk, and it was vetoed. Many of you remember um, Governor Dugard vetoing it back in the day. Um, and I think just what we're seeing now is either legislators have strong convictions on this, and they're like you and I, kind of saying, why do we even need a law? Or they just don't have the convictions on why this is needed, and they're just kind of sick of us talking about it. It's kind of what I'm seeing here at the Capitol, and it's unfortunate. 
Yeah, it, it is, because it is an important issue. Like, the rights of other people are at stake. And that's, you know, we've talked about this in the past, Norman, that people who are suffering from gender dysphoria, they need to be treated with support and love. But that doesn't mean that we can disregard the rights of others. Right. So, hey, well, that's all, uh, all the time we've got for this week. Norman Woods, director of the Family Heritage Alliance, thank you for joining us on the program. Cool. Thanks for having me, Chris. And thank you, dear listeners, as always, for tuning in. If you've got ideas what you want to hear on this show, don't hesitate to reach out. sdcatholicconference.org. Click Contact Us. Drop us a line. Until next time, live well. 